Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. It's Mother's Day. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer brings a great word from God's Word about leading your home well. Today's talk is titled, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Stay with us to the end and find out how you can connect to Unity Baptist Church. glad that you are here this Mother's Day, as best you know how, making God a priority every Sunday and every day of of your life. Because every day is the day that the Lord has made, and we have a responsibility to worship God and honor God no matter what day of the week it is. Sunday is just a day that we do that all together. So this morning, if you'd like, turn with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be looking at verses 13 to 16 that we mentioned and referenced during our baby dedication. At this point in time in Jesus' ministry in Mark 10, Jesus is nearing the end of his earthly ministry. It's the last passage that we have before Jesus is about to enter into what we call the Passion Week, that busy period of time of his life leading up to his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection. And so as we look at this and we stop to examine what are some of the most important things that Jesus wants to communicate right before he goes off, if you will, to this series of events that will culminate in his death. It's gonna be something pretty important, won't it be? He's gonna talk about children. He's gonna talk about faith. He's gonna talk about family. And so in Mark chapter 10, verse 13, Jesus is gonna show us several things about children. And the first thing he's going to show us is he's going to show us that Jesus is what children need most. Now, when I was a little kid growing up in the 80s, it seemed like every other TV commercial was about children's cereal. Do you remember that? You know, you'd have everything from, you know, Mikey Likes It, you know, Life Cereal. You'd have uh, Check Cereal. They had Kick Cereal, Kid Tested, Mother Approved. Didn't believe it because it wasn't sweet. No kid tested that. Maybe some homeschool kid where the mom convinced him it's good for you. But one thing that was common with all the cereals is, is every cereal in the 80s, for whatever reason, made a real big deal of it contains the eight essential vitamins of a child, eight essential vitamins and iron. So the the idea was if you give your kid lucky charms before they go to school, they're gonna do better in school, they're gonna graduate top of their class, eventually they're gonna be an engineer, and you'll be able to retire in Tahiti because your children ate lucky charms for breakfast. And that was the idea, sort of promoting to the parents, here's what kids need most in life, and you know what, breakfast cereals aren't the only ones that do it, is it? There's always a word from our sponsor out there in the world trying to convince us, hey, if you want successful children, if you want them to grow up happy and successful, they need to be this. They need to do this. They need to be piano virtuosos. They need to be at the top of their class academically. They need to be lettering in six different sports. That's what the world says is how to make successful children. The Bible's going to show us here that what's most needful for a child to be a, a success in life is Jesus Can your child not letter in sports, not be in the academic top 10% of their class, not be an engineer, and still live a happy life if they follow Jesus Christ? They can, can't they? Can your child also likewise letter in six different sports, be the captain of the chess team, uh, the valedictorian of their class, go on to be a doctor and make tons of money and still torpedo their life and be the most miserable people you know? That is possible. The most needful thing for a child is Jesus Christ. And these parents understood that. As Jesus has been teaching these people about the kingdom of God that is to come, the first thing on the parents' minds is, these kids need to be close to this man. 
and these parents made sure that they got close. So in verse 13, we're going to see it says, and they, this crowd that Jesus had been preaching to, it says, and they were bringing their children to him that he might touch them. What, what do you mean, Jesus? Hey, Jesus, will you touch my child? What does this mean? Verse 16, it talks about Jesus laying hands on the child. This isn't just Jesus touching kids. High five, kids. You know, this is Jesus conferring upon them a blessing, much like what the patriarchs of the Old Testament did. I read people like uh, Noah and Jacob and Isaac. They would lay hands upon their children. They would bless them, set them apart for God, asking a special blessing upon them and their faith to follow in the footsteps of their forefathers in obeying God. This is, if you, if you will, a baby dedication of sorts. It's a declaration to God of, of a cry for his help. God, help us to raise these children because we don't know what we're doing. It's sort of like the prayer of a little-known man in Judges verse chapter 13. Man, a man of God, God sends uh, these messengers and they tell this relatively unknown man, Manoah, no, not the guy in the ark with the animals, Manoah, and he tells him, you're gonna have a baby. And so his first prayer here is, then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, let the man of God whom you sent come again and do what? Teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. This is some of the best parenting advice I can give you, and that is have the humility to seek wisdom. Don't be one of those parents who boldly declare, I'm their mother, I know what's best for this kid. You know, yes, you're maybe their mother, maybe you're their father, and it is your responsibility to do what is best for the child, but as parents, as soon as we birth a child, do we just innately download all the information that's necessary to be a good parent? Do we just automatically know these things? No, we don't. It requires a humility to seek wisdom from God's word, to seek wisdom from godly parents. Hey, help me understand how to raise this child. Manoah got that. Send this man of God again to teach us what we are to do with a child who's been born. I always know that a child is on the path for trouble when you hear things like the parents saying, I know what's best for them. First of all, this child is not your child, is it? Whose is it? is God's. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. These children don't belong to us. We're not here to make them disciples of us. We're here to make them disciples of God. We're to train them to ultimately obey and honor God's authority. Why does the Bible say in Ephesians 6, 1, children obey parents and the Lord for this is right? Is it because parents have an ego kick? No. Because we are training children to obey the first authority that God has given them in their life. If a child doesn't learn to honor mom and dad and to obey them, will they learn to obey other authority later? No, the Bible says the eye that mocks his father, the birds of the air will pluck it out. Because back then, you know, what kind of birds would peck out the eyes of people? They're dead people who've been either hung or people who have been thrown out of the gates of the city because they're under capital punishment. So the eye that mocks his father as a child, what he's saying is your kid doesn't have a bright future ahead of him if he can't first learn to honor and obey mom and dad at home. And so, no, it's not an ego kick. Friends, we are raising up these children to obey us because that's what God says. He says it's right, and ultimately so that we can transfer that authority to God. But to do that, we first have to seek that wisdom from the Lord. God, show us how to raise these children. In Mark 10, 13, it says Jesus, or people are coming to Christ to be blessed by him, and then something surprising happens. They're bringing their kids to Jesus, and then what do we read? And it says, and the disciples rebuked them. Hey, don't bring your kids over here. Now, who, who is rebuking these kids? 
Was it these, you know, evil Pharisees with like a handlebar mustache? <laughs> you don't bring your children around here. Uh, no, it's the disciples. These are the people of God. These are the people who are following Jesus, being discipled by Jesus, who worship Jesus. And what are they doing? They're rebuking the parents for bringing the kids to Jesus. Why is that? Now, in those days, culturally, children weren't quite as endearing to the general populace as they are today. In fact, did you know they weren't even called sons or daughters until their uh, bar mitzvah, until they were a son or a daughter of the covenant? They were just called children. And so there was sort of a societal idea that children aren't that important, so we're just gonna, you know, we're not gonna let, Jesus has better things to do. Can that ever happen in a church where we get so busy doing ministry to all the adults, all the big people and taking care of their needs that sometimes we forget that some of the most important ministry we do in the church are these little guys? And so these disciples are getting in the way of these parents who are bringing their children to Jesus. Hear me say this, church. If we ignore the spiritual development of our children, both as a family and as a church, our entire society will collapse. Like a sandcastle you build by the tide and the tide comes in, it'll wash it clean. Let me show you in living color. You remember Israel, they were in the land of Egypt. God leads them out of the land of Egypt. He, they wander in the wilderness for a little bit, but God says, but I'm leading you to a land flowing with milk and honey, with houses you didn't build and fields you didn't plant. It's gonna be a great place. You're gonna love it. I've got all kinds of blessing on the other side here. But first, you have to trust me to go in the land and take it. People said, oh, but there's giants there. We're intimidated by the, the world that's out there. And so they backed down. And God allowed the old generation to die in the wilderness and the young generation then rose up under Joshua, right? And Joshua leads the people in the land. And this is, if you will, Israel's greatest generation. They were the World War II guys. They, they suffered when they were young, right? You know, Great Depression. And then uh, the time of battle comes and they trust and they honor God and country and they go in and they take the land and they were faithful and they were godly people and they trusted God. And what book was that? It was the one named after their leader, Joshua, right? It was, it was an amazing time of conquest and obedience and trusting God and faith. But what book comes after Joshua? Oh, you guys went to Awana, didn't you? You memorized your books. Judges. Was Judges a good period of time or a dark period of time? It was the darkest period of Israel's history. Six cycles of sin. Israel, they, they follow God with great spiritual renewal. Eventually, they get too full of just all the blessings of society, and they forget God, and then they become just like the world, and God brings in an enemy invader, and then they take over them, and then after years and years of suffering, the people finally call out to God again. God raises up a judge, and then they repeat that cycle over and over. And it was a dark period. Now, how is it that one generation after the good guys are the greatest generation of Israel, why is it the very next generation we read in the book of Judges? It says there arose a generation who didn't know the Lord nor his works. Why? Let me back up and show you Deuteronomy 6. Right before they entered the land, God gave them a command. In Deuteronomy 6, he gives them what is called the great Shema Israel, the, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. He says in Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7, after giving them this one first and great commandment that sets Judaism apart from all the rest of the, you know, pagan deities of the world, he says, and these words that I command you here today shall be on your heart. In other words, if you want to have good kids, you have to first be a disciple yourself. He says, and you, who's you? It's the parents. 
You shall diligently teach them to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Deuteronomy 6, what did God see as the nucleus of spiritual development? Is it, was it the church? No, it didn't exist. Was it the uh, synagogue? No, it didn't exist. Was it the temple? Friends, it was the family. The first spiritual institution God ever created was the home. And God says, you first will be disciples yourself, and then you as parents diligently teach it to your children. That's God's intended way. Can I tell you, having been in ministry 26 years, is it 27 now? Uh, long enough, that I've seen that the children who really do well and follow the Lord in their faith are people whose parents brought them up to honor God. The parents who joined their children in church, the parents who read the Bible to their kids, the parents who prayed with their children, the parents who applied scripture to everyday life, the kids saw a reality to the faith. The kids who punt the faith, some of them, they went to church their whole life, but they walked away. Why? Because there wasn't a reality in the home. Mom and dad weren't teaching their own children. They left it up to the church. They left it up to Christian school. They left it up, you know, their last Hail Mary pass into the end zone was, dear God, I'm gonna send them to Christian university. We all know that turns out well. Um, the responsibility to raise up spiritual children comes, from, comes to parents. Deuteronomy 6, this will be on your heart and you will teach your children. When? He says, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, as you sit in your house. When is that? It's as long as you can. Take as much of time as you can because time is influence. Time is influence. Think of your child's life like a pie chart of time. Whoever owns the biggest slices of the pie own the biggest pieces of your child's heart. They have the greatest influence. Now I realize as parents, as our kids get older, they have to go to school, they have to go different places and track and work and things. And so that slice of time can narrow. All I'm saying is this, parents, the bigger you can make your piece of pie, the more influence you'll have in the heart of your child. That might mean saying no to some good things so that you can increase your slice of the pie. You're an influence with the child. Why, why do I need that influence? So that, the Bible says, you can diligently teach it to your children. Diligently means something that you do, you invest great effort into. Did Israel do that? When they entered the land, their greatest generation, they entered the land, did they do that? No, how do we know? Because the next book gives us uh, a reason why Judges was such a dark time. In Judges 2.10, after it describes the death of Joshua, it says those words, and there arose a generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why didn't the children know? Why did that generation rise up and not know? because Deuteronomy 6 was not followed. If you've got kids who don't know God, it's not the church's fault, it's not a Christian school's fault, it's not a university's fault. Friends, it's a family responsibility. God lays this firmly upon the family's shoulders to do this. But I'm glad we live in America where this can't happen, where we won't have our generation that rises up who doesn't know the Lord. Right? Even think about our own greatest generation. You know, and these are people that grew up in the Great Depression. They knew what you know, deprivation was. They, they knew what rubber drives were and steel drives were, and they worked hard, and they trusted God, and they, they fought and beat back the enemy. What do we have exactly one generation, roughly 20, 25 years? What do we have exactly one generation after World War II? You have the 60s. Was that a time of great piety, of great spiritual renewal of our children's reviving come back to God? No, you had bands named after animals. You had monkeys and turtles and birds and, you know, any other kind of animal you've known of. You know, you got, you got bands with names like Jefferson Airplane. Like, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, you've got these children. They're, they're all just singing in the park, and they've just checked out of society. 
and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing drugs and they're smoking and they're just singing songs and they're trying to just unite the world with their anthems of love and worship. And did that work? No, they, they punted God, many of them. They all kinds of authority, they just threw off. And so you can have good and godly generation, but family, friends, if we don't raise our own family, if we don't disciple our own children, we're only one generation from the book of Judges, a generation that arises who doesn't know the Lord. And God places that responsibility on the parents' shoulders. Now, friends, if you're a, if you're a parent this morning and you're, you're suffering because you've got some children who went south, this isn't a time to just get all lathered up with guilt and, and, and feel really bad this Mother's Day. Okay, there is grace on the other side. But I think even you as parents who have experienced that great pain of watching children walk away from the Lord, wouldn't you be one who is promoting even all the more, <laughs> you're, you're, you're that loud voice saying to young parents, get to your children while you can. Get to them while they're young. Bring them to church, bring them to the Lord, live it out. Did you know this, that God has rigged parenting so that our children's holiness and our happiness are in proportion to one another. I could give you any number of verses, but I'll read to you Proverbs 17, verse 25. He says, a foolish son, now let's pause. What's a foolish son in Proverbs? It's not someone who's just silly. You know, kids do silly things. You know, they wear underwear on their head and they dance around, they bang on pots and pans. You know, that's, that's silly. We're not talking about that kind of foolishness. We all got those kind of kids. Uh, it says a foolish son in Proverbs is the opposite of God's wisdom. They're living sinfully. So when we see a fool, God is calling somebody a fool because he's not living obediently to God. This is a sinner. This is a, uh, someone who's walking in the way of the world. A foolish son is a grief to his father. Father's gonna be mourning something that's lost. And it says, it's a bitterness to her who bore him. What's he saying? That your child's holiness is necessary for your future happiness. And parents, those of you who have had children who have gone south in there, you understand that. That it's essential for our happiness in the future. God has rigged these things together. We're either going to raise up our children and enjoy the, the godly heritage that comes from us, or we're going to be praying for them continually in tears. We don't want to be that. How do, we, how do we turn this thing around as a parent? How do we turn this around as a nation? It's one family and one child at a time. We, we do family Bible times together. You're like, what? I never had that growing up. I didn't really have that either. But what we can do here, I'll tell you what we did with our children is, uh, before our children went to bed, and we tried at different times in the morning and stuff, but we, right before our children went to bed, and by the way, we set their bedtime. So I don't mean like if your child likes to go to bed at 1 a.m., you do it at midnight. Um, you set your child's bedtime. And before that time, we would sit down and we would open the Bible. Now, when my, my oldest one, Colin, was really little, it was just a little cloth, one of those little you know, cloth books of Noah. And we read Noah for like six months. And, uh, and just every night, Noah, rerun. You know, you're seeing Noah and the animals get on and off. And, but following that, we got a children's Bible, much like we gave our young parents this morning. And then we would just sit the kids in our lap and we'd point at the pictures. Ooh, what's that? You know, and then we'd tell the story. As our kids get older, we'd be encouraging them towards you know, good behavior. You know, hey, what does David display here? He displays faith. He's faith in God. When he dis, you know, defeated Goliath and he was trusting God, how can we trust God? And we show them how to live morally. We get done with this Bible time. We ask the kids for prayer requests. We sit down and we pray and, and we let our kids listen to us bless God for them. And then we take them to their beds and we tuck them in. I know it's old fashioned, right? But we tuck them in and you sit next to them, on their bed next to them and you ask them about their day. How was your day? 
What was good? What was bad? What are you struggling with? What are you happy about? You know, and sometimes we'd pray for them again right there on their bed, just us and them. If we can do things like that, family, we're gonna have children who see a reality to our faith. They'll see that this faith doesn't have an asterisk next to it. Well, this is what the church teaches, but this is not what we do at home. It has no practical application to my life. They're gonna see it's real. And as our children got older, we would take them out to eat, you know, junior high or so, right before high school gets really busy, junior high, early high school, and we would take them out and we personally discipled our children. You say, I don't even know what that looks like. Do you know, friends, as a family here as a church, we have a discipleship system that we use. Do you know that you can take those very groups that you, those books that we use in D groups, and you can take your teenage children, and you can take them out to a fun little dinner, and you can go through, and you can study the Bible together with them. You don't even have to know what you're doing. Just do what you saw your facilitator do in D group, and then you do that with your children, and we can disciple the next generation so that we don't have Judges 2.10, where there's a generation who rises up who doesn't know God. We can do this. In fact, it's essential that we do this. Number two, we're gonna see here that Jesus, he highly values children. Look at verse 14. Jesus sees the disciples, they're hindering the, the, the children, the families from coming to him, and he gives them a reprimand. He scolds them, this is wrong. What you're doing is wrong. Not appreciating the children is wrong. He says, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. These are children. It's the word, uh, Greek word paideia. It means, it, that's just a general term for all children, but Luke, in a parallel passage, says, uses the term brephos, which refers to little kids, itty-bitties, you know, anywhere from zero up to about age four or so. So these are little ones. Uh, Jesus is taking them up in his arms. These are little guys, people that, that don't know better to believe in God or not believe in God, but we see the families, they're bringing these little children all the way from birth to their first few years, and they're saying, Jesus, put your blessing upon them. And then Jesus says, let the little children come unto me. Now, the English isn't really clear. In fact, some of your old translations, if you're using the King James, probably says, suffer the little children. That sounds morbid, you know. Suffer the children, you know. Bring them to Sunday school. They're gonna hate it. Uh, this isn't what we're talking about here. That obscures the meaning. Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And it doesn't mean that your child naturally wants to go to church because how many of your kids would choose to get up early on a Sunday, especially if they're teens? No, that's not their, that's not their MO. Let the little children come unto me. The English is a little weak, but the Greek is much stronger. The word let here is the, is the Greek word aphiame, which just means to send forth, to yield them to God. It's an active thing that parents do. We don't just be like, oh, little Johnny, you want to go to church today? I'll let you. No, it's Johnny, you're going to church. I don't want to go to church. You're going to go to church because it's good for you. Okay? We do that in all kinds of areas of life that are important. The best way that I can illustrate what this word means to let the children come, to send them forth, uh, is when we were living in China. My family and I, we'd go out to eat most nights because it was really cheap. And we'd be sitting there eating our Kung Pao chicken, and then all of a sudden, out of the corner of our eye, we see a family, and they're looking at us. I mean, which isn't uncommon. We got stared at a lot in China. But they'd be looking at us, and they got little children. I see the parents talking to the children. The children's like, you know, and, and the parents are like, you know, and we're like, oh, here it comes. We know it's coming. And pretty soon, that little child, the parents are like pushing them away from the table at the foreigners. That was us. Go talk to those Americans and use the English that we spend $200 a week to, you know, train you in. And so the kids kind of, you know, pushing up to the, the foreigner, and then they let out sort of their spiel. Uh, hello. <laughs> 
We're like, oh, how, oh, how are you? Oh, fine, thank you. <laughs> and then he goes into a spiel. Uh, my name is Toby. I like pizza. I am six years old. And then they just, they're like, ah, uh, that's where my script stops. <laughs> and then we'd be like, oh, did you come here with your mommy and daddy? Well, he didn't get taught that. So he just locks up and he runs back to mom and dad. But mom and dad are like high-fiving the kid. Yeah, well done, great, you know. Because the way they see it, is English is the path to success. And if my child is just learning it in the class, it's not gonna be his, and so he's gotta practice it. So I'm going to push the child beyond what's comfortable. I'm gonna push this child beyond what their flesh naturally wants to do, because doggone it, you're gonna learn English because it's important. Because if you don't learn English, you can't become you know, an amazing doctor that studies in the US and comes back to China wealthy. And so they did what's important for the child. They yielded them. They sent them forth. That's the idea of this word here. Not just let the kids come to church if they want to. It's send them forth. Sometimes our children will be like, oh, I don't want to go to church. I don't feel like going to youth group tonight. I've got better things to do. And we send them forth. This is good for you. Always amazes me when I hear parents who give their children the choice. Do you feel like going to church? Nah. Okay, I just don't want to force them. I don't want someone to force me. Okay, families, they're... They're little kids. You're an adult, they're not adults yet. And so sometimes as parents, we have to make decisions for the children until they're mature enough to make the right decision themselves. We do that in other places. How many of you guys on Monday morning, your kid has to go to school, you, you know, you come in little Johnny's room at you know, seven in the morning. You're like, hey Johnny, do you wanna go to school today? Nah, I think I'll stay home and uh, play the Xbox today all day. Well, okay. I mean, I don't want to be forced to do things I don't want to do, so I'm just going to back out and let him not go to school. Are you going to do that? Of course not, because school's essential to their future success. You know that. They don't know that. So when it comes to church and, and following God, do we let the kid make all those choices? No, because they don't understand how important Jesus is to their future success. And so guess what? We yield them forth. We send them forth to Jesus because as parents, we know better. We know that the most important thing in their life isn't just that they learn academics. It's not just that they become some, you know, wealthy, successful lawyer or businesswoman or business person. It's that they know and love Jesus. And so we send them forth. Jesus says in John 10, 14, or uh, Mark 10, 14, he says, and do not hinder them. Don't stand in the way like these disciples were, who are like physically like, hey, 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 Jesus doesn't have time for you. Jesus tells, tells us as disciples, like he did his own disciples, don't hinder the kids. Now, most of you are thinking, you know, I don't, I don't hinder my kid. He doesn't naturally want to go to church. Sunday morning rolls around, my kid's not, oh, Father, away with us to the church where we may hear of the glorious words of the Lord preached faithfully week after week as my sing and worship and praise of my glorious creator and father. None of your children are doing that on Sunday morning. Okay, so it's, that's not, you're not hindering them saying, oh no, oh no, you're gonna stay home like other kids and you're gonna watch TV. I'm gonna hinder you from going to Jesus. We don't hinder them like that. How as parents, do, can we though hinder them from coming to Jesus? We allow the world to set their schedule for them. Can that happen? Where the world gets in the way. And we, over time, we just look and we're like, oh, but they can't go to church. They've, they've got to work that day. You know, when I went to work, one of the qualifications was I don't work on Sundays. And they followed it. Well, they can't work here then. Okay. But you've got to make a priority and a choice. Understand, though, that every time that we allow something to come in the way of God, you have schooled and educated your child. Church is important, but not if there's something better to do. 
And so, you know, football comes along, and then baseball comes along, and then track comes along, and then uh, some contest comes along, and then this comes along, and that comes along, and pretty soon in the lab of life, we have told our children Jesus is important, but then when it comes out to actually living it out, we tell them, you know, there's better things to do than to, than to go to church and be a part of what God is doing. I'm not saying you can't ever miss. You know, we take vacations, we do things, but one thing we did for our children to make sure it didn't get in the way is we didn't let them become so hyper and over-involved that they're constantly gone from mom and dad, and the pie chart of mom and dad's time whittles down to little to nothing, and then we wonder why our children don't listen. It's because we lack time. Time is influence. And what does God want us to use that influence for? To diligently teach our children when we rise up, when we lay down, as we go about our day. And so there's this tug of war of life. We don't, we don't become slaves and victims of our culture. Well, I have to let my kid be fantastically involved. Let me ask you again, parents, if your child letters in six sports and they're academic top 10%, can they still torpedo their life without Jesus? Yes. And so as a parent, we see that, and so we make that a priority to have our children here and to raise them up. Jesus says, do not hinder them because of such or for such is the kingdom of God. Jesus is declaring ownership of these children. They belong to me. Bring them to me because they belong to me. Moreover than that, I believe that we can also see from this the implication that children belong to God. That I think this helps answer the question, uh, if you're a mother and you've had a miscarriage, you've lost a child, God help you, that's one of the most painful things I think a mother can endure. You've lost a child. What happens to my babies, my children? Do they, do they go to heaven? It's, it's a question we get asked a lot. I believe from Jesus' words here, Jesus is declaring ownership of these young ones who can't yet make a decision. It's certainly consistent with the nature and character of God that Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, right? And so I believe here from what Jesus is saying here, such belong the king, for such is the kingdom of God. These are God's kingdom children. And even more so, David, when he lost his child in 2 Samuel 12, verses 22 to 23, uh, he lost that child of Bathsheba. And he says, uh, when he stopped fasting, he was asked, why did you stop fasting and praying? And he said this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and the child may live. But now that he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? But then he says this, I will go to him but he will not return to me. So what is it that comforted David to the point where he felt like he could stop fasting and praying? There's a sense that David knew and understood he would see his, his lost child again one day. And I pray that that's just a comfort to you who have lost children. Number three, Jesus calls all of us to be like these children. He says in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into it. We're called to believe as children do. Children have a very simple, uncomplicated faith. I love you, I trust you, and I will, I, I will entrust my entire future to you. My children uh, would often put that to the test. <laughs> I'd be walking through the house and they would climb the couch or they'd climb the stairs, and without me even knowing, I'd just be walking by, and out of the corner of my eye, it's like my spider sense goes off, you know, and I, I see this child like a ring-tailed lemur just leaping out, you know, into my arms, just sure that I'm gonna catch them. 
Now, I tell you what, the faith of this child was not such that they had done, you know, wind speed calculations, you know, height, weight, uh, I think he can handle it if I hit him at this angle, I'm sure. No, the kid's just like, there's my dad, I trust him, woo! You know, and they just leap out and I catch them and I'm like, wow, won't be able to do that much longer. <laughs> and you know, we put the little kid down. And, but that's the kind of faith that a child has. I know you, I trust you, I love you, I entrust my entire future to you. And God calls all of us to trust God in that same way. There's gonna come a day that every one of us will close our eyes in death one day, and we're gonna have to trust God like this little child. I don't have to know all the complex ways about how God saves. Man, we like to, dis you know, we like to make it complicated. We wanna discuss, oh, let's discuss infralapsarian cosmology and the epistemological morass. Don't worry about those terms. Okay, but we wanna make God and theology complex. God wants us just to trust like a little child that when we close our eyes in death, we simply know Jesus loves me, he's strong, he can handle it, and we just leap into the dark, trusting that our Father, he's gonna catch us, he's going to hold us, he's gonna carry us to safety, and that's exactly what he does. No, the gospel is simple. John uh, chapter five, verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes my words or believes him who sent me, he has eternal life. You hear the word of God, you believe the word of God, Jesus says, you have eternal life. You believe in what God says about who Jesus is. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, you believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, Romans 10, 9 says, you will be saved. It's simple. You just have to know who you trust, that he, know that he loves you, know that you trust him, and you just leap into his arms. You don't have to understand how he does it or why he does it. You just have to know that he's trustworthy like a child. So number four, and finally, we're gonna see that Jesus affirms the children. The Jesus, the God of the universe, co-equal with the Father, creator of all things, king of the universe, he wants to be around children. And he affirms them in a couple of different ways. Look in verse 16. He took them into his arms and blessed them, and he laid his hands upon them. First thing Jesus did to affirm these children, it says he blessed them. This is the Greek word eulogos, a good word. We get the English word eulogy. At a funeral, you choose, you know, you have someone, you could tell, you could tell things about them that they did wrong, but you don't. You choose to say the good things, right? Nobody goes to a funeral and go, yeah, that guy's a no good, worthless, nothing scoundrel, unless he still owes me 20 bucks. No, you go to a, you, you go to a funeral and you give a eulogy and you choose you choose to say the good things. There are good things about them, and you say those things. This is that word. It's that it's, Jesus is saying good words to these children. He doesn't criticize them. Look at you acting up. I heard you shouting over there and fighting with Billy when they're trying to get up for my blessing. My blessing. How could you do that? No, Jesus just blesses and affirms them and gives them good words. How are you doing, little Jenny? So glad you're here. And he affirms and he encourages them. He speaks these good words. Is that important that children hear good words from their parents? It is. Remember Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Did you hear that? Death and life. The words that we speak, they're not neutral. They're either building somebody up or they're tearing them down. Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. You'll eat its fruit, that there's gonna be lasting consequences. There's gonna be fruit from the words that we choose to say to our children. They're either building up our children and their confidence, their confidence in the Lord, or they're tearing our children down and making them feel like they can't ever do anything right. What Ephesians 6 describes as fathers provoking their children to wrath. I give up, you can't be pleased. 
And it's just, that, that word uh, provoke them to wrath, it's like a sigh. It's just, <sighs> and your child just feels like you can never be pleased because you keep dangling affirmation and acceptance in front of them to keep them motivated. But eventually, a child will not be motivated anymore. They're just gonna feel discouraged because they have to know, they have to hear these good words, these encouraging words. Do our children need that even as adult children? Do you like to hear when your mom and dad tell you they're proud of you? My adult son, when I talk to him, I make sure that uh, when Colin calls, I make sure there's two things that we've affirmed that we're gonna do every time he calls. Colin, if you're listening, you know this is true. Uh, every time he calls, I wanna make sure that he knows that we're proud of him, and we try to give specific praise. We are proud of you that you are this, that you are a man of God, that you're leading your family well, you're, you're involved in your church, you're discipling others, you're a good example and testimony at work, and I am proud of you for that. It's specific praise. And the second thing we want them to know is I love you. I accept you. No matter what you've done, no matter what, you, what you're trying, you know, your kid, they go out and get a tattoo, they get a piercing, they, they go all black, you, they still know I still love you and trust you because these externals aren't gonna change my love for you. I'm not gonna hold my acceptance of you out like a carrot and make you work for it. I'm just gonna give it freely because isn't that how God gives his love? He loves us freely in that same way. He doesn't dangle his acceptance like a carrot. He simply offers it. And so I try to communicate that to him. You know, even for me as an adult man, been in ministry a number of years, got three grown adult children, you know, I still liked, past tense, to hear my father's praise. Those of you who know, my father passed away the day before I preached in view of a call here at this church, uh, just this last year uh, of COVID. And there are still times when I will pull out my cell phone and I will scroll through to my dad's final text to me. Do you know that in my dad's final text, he was still just offering up tremendous, just this praise. He's specifically praising me for the things that he feels like he's proud of, that, I'm, that, he's, that I did well. And I, I screenshot those things. I wanna carry that for the rest of my life. Those words have meaning, they have power, they breathe life into our children. Are you saying those things to your children? Are you telling them you love them? Are you giving him specific praise? Jesus finally, he blesses them with his touch. It says he took them into his arms and he touched them. The fact that Jesus is taking them into his arms indicates that, you know, there's infants, there's little ones here. Either that or Jesus is really strong and he's picking up teenagers into his arms, but I don't think that's the idea being communicated here. Jesus took them in his arms, it says, and he touched them, he laid hands on them. But he didn't just lay hands on them, you know, all right, be blessed, be warmed and filled, be gone. You be blessed, you be blessed, you be blessed. Jesus, this is a tender thing. It says Jesus didn't just lay hands on them, he's taking them into his arms. How much more powerful are affirming words when they're accompanied by an affirming touch? What does touch communicate? Touch communicates closeness. It communicates intimacy and acceptance. When you go over to Kroger's or Food Fair and you buy groceries, you don't walk around the counter and go up to your cashier and put your hand on them and say, thank you so much. You rub them, you know, give, give, give me a hug, bring it in, bring it in. You know, there's, there's sort of a professional distance there. You're like, hmm. Don't need that, don't need that from you. We're not that close. But people, you know, with people here at church, you'll shake hands, you're gonna hug. It communicates an acceptance. There's a, there's a communication of acceptance that is so much deeper when we're willing to let, put our hands on someone and to touch them. What does it communicate then to our children when we put our hands on them? And we, we put our arm around them. We sit on the couch, watch a movie, put our arm around them. We don't sit on the opposite sides of the couch and do our phones, you know. We, we sit close. We put our little kids on our laps. We kiss our kid on the head goodnight, even when they're using acne treatment gel, okay? They need it even as teenagers. 
They need it. They may act like, oh, I hate this hugs. I hate these love. But you know what? They, they love it. If you've not ever done it before, they're going to really kind of like, what is this? But they need that love and that affirmation, that affection. Your spouse, your mate needs that, that physical touch, that affirmation. Hold hands. Put your arm around your mate. Show that physical connection and do that with your children. Jesus did. Jesus let them know. He put his hands on them. When you put your hands on someone to touch them, to embrace them, to shake their hand, whatever, it shows intimacy and warmth. It shows an acceptance and a desire to be close to them. And our children never outgrow that. I don't care how old your kids are. My daughter came home last night to visit with us, our middle daughter, and the first thing we did is we gave her a long lingering hug and a back scratch, and she knows it's coming. She tells me that's the best thing after a five and a half hour drive. I says, that's what I want. You know, and I've, even my son, I'll, I, do I hug my son? I sure do. I, I don't shake hands. Welcome home, son. You know, we shake, I hug my son. You say, well, I didn't, grow, <clears throat> I didn't grow up with hugs. My dad never hugged me. He was World War II. And, you can break that. You can be like Jesus and take them into your arms. Even if he's, you know, 45 years old, hug that kid. Now, my, my son will really lean into that hug and he'll make it weird. He'll like kiss me on the cheek. I'm like, okay, that's a little much. Okay, I accept you, but maybe not that far. And then I have a youngest daughter, uh, Capri, uh, when she comes home and she gets hugged, she's like one of those little 1980s Velcro monkeys. Any of you guys ever have those? They just like cling to you everywhere you go. And I'll hug my daughter for a while. I'll try to let go and she won't let go. And she'll make me drag her around the house. This is a full grown adult child here in college. And she, I will drag this girl in the house and I have to tickle her to get, me, get her off of me because they long, even as adults, they long for that, that touch and that hug, it communicates a warmth and an acceptance. Jesus communicated both those things, good words and good touches. We need that desperately. What do kids need most to succeed in life? They need Jesus. What if they're not valedictorian? It's okay. What if your kid works at Walmart their whole life? It's okay. Do they love Jesus? Do they love Jesus and are they aware of the love and the acceptance of mom and dad? Doesn't matter what they do in life. They're a success, they're a raving success. And you will be happy and delighted with those children. So this Mother's Day, I want you all to go home. I'm asking you not to come to church tonight, okay? And no, it's not because God is important. You just got done saying we have to be at church. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you have to come Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and all these services, okay? Jesus says the man was not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for the man. We're not here to serve all of that. It's meant to be a time of rest and warmth. And so on holidays, often when family is in town, it's sometimes the only time you're together. As a church, we don't wanna be just another thing in society that's ripping you apart from one another. You go be that spiritual nucleus in your family's life. Spend time together. You know, play a few hands of Uno or whatever you do, you know, watch a movie, do something together. And using that relationship, influence them toward God. They need to hear it from you more than they ever need to hear it from me more than need to hear it from Brad or anybody else. They need to see it from mom and dad. That faith is lived out in real life. Go home, tell them you love them, tell them you're proud of them, give them specific praise. Let them know Jesus isn't the only one that loves you. I fully love you and accept you no matter what you do, no matter where you go, you will always be my child and I will always care for you. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for our mothers. We are so grateful for the commitment of time and love and compassion that they have shown to each one of us. We are so grateful for mothers who are like uh, the mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice of Timothy, who raised him up. And Paul says, how knowing from your childhood you were taught the sacred scriptures, 
that mama and grandma were very faithful in teaching these children. Lord, we give, we just give thanks. We give thanks, God, for you and the love that you show us that both the male and female aspects of man are found in the image of God as we're created in God's image. Where you, you even say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I would have gathered you under my wings like a mother hen her chicks. We see the compassion of a mother even within the, the very presence of God. So Lord, we love you and we worship you this morning. We thank you that you have told us you are proud of us. We thank you that you have told us you love us. And God, we look forward to that day when we can, we can have you lay hands on us and you can bring us in and you can hug us and you can touch us and you can show us that nearness and that acceptance that we lack right now. In the meantime, Lord, I pray that we would find that joy and that uh, acceptance within our earthly fathers and mothers. And for those who are us who have lost our fathers and mothers, that we would find that joy and presence within our own nuclear family, within our spiritual family here at church. We ask all this in Christ. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to make a decision to ask Christ into your heart, click on the link in the show notes and we will be able to help you find your way to Jesus. If you enjoyed today's message, give our podcast channel some love by liking and subscribing to it. And as promised, if you would like more information about Unity, you can connect with us at unitybaptistashland.com or on Facebook at UBC Ashland. Thank you for spending the day with us. We hope that you have a blessed day.